We're all in this together. No one country can solve the problem of the climate crisis. So we have to work to get every other nation to come on board. You have just heard U.S. Special Presidential Envoy on Climate, John Kerry, from a new video on the National Museum of American Diplomacy. Welcome to Climate Talks, the podcast that follows global climate negotiations and this year the journey to COP28. Climate Talks is produced by Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Cathy Oak, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Beck Markey-Towler. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and the land which this podcast was produced. I pay respects to the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We invite our listeners to take a moment to reflect and acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which you live. Welcome listeners, it's Beck. With our guests today... Kathy and I will be talking about COP diplomacy, how national priorities, perspectives, partnerships play out at the annual climate talks, and we'll have a bit of a recap of some recent announcements from the Australian government related to climate action. But before turning to our guest, Kathy, let's quickly recap and talk about the latest on COP28. So since our last episode, Beck, we saw the UAE and Germany co-host the annual Petersburg Climate Dialogue. This conference provides a bridge between COP27 and COP28 for parties and constituencies where they share their views on priorities for the next COP. Yeah, and availability, affordability and access to finance for the necessary transition was a cross-cutting theme from the dialogue, Cathy. That's right. There are other issues included the global stock take, which is to take place at this year's COP, work on mitigation, adaptation, a new quantified goal on finance, operationalising the loss and damage funding arrangements and the Just Transition Work Program. And another interesting development was that we heard that the COP28 President Sultan al-Jaba, that we will have a dedicated day to health this year at the COP, something advocates have been pushing forward for some time. And looking closer to home, here in Australia, we saw the release of the 2023-24 budget included a number of interesting climate-related measures. We should now throw to our co-host at large, Professor Jackie Peel, Director of Melbourne Climate Futures, to hear more about some of the announcements here in Australia. And she'll also have a bit more on the latest in COP. Welcome to the show, Jackie. Thanks, Vic. So we were wondering if you're able to tell us a little bit about what's been happening with some of the big climate world news at the moment. So the G7, the COP, the Australian budget, anything in that area. So, Beck, there's been a lot happening both internationally and domestically in the last couple of weeks. We've just had the conclusion of the G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan. 
The focus of that meeting was very much on security issues in light of the Ukraine crisis and the G7 members and other invited guests, including the Australian Prime Minister, coming together in a sort of unity around that issue. But there was also a strong focus on clean energy issues. Disappointingly, perhaps there wasn't a strong outcome in terms of those rich economies agreeing to a phase out of fossil fuels or anything close to that kind of announcement. There was a lot of focus instead on clean energy cooperation um, and a particular focus on the Indo-Pacific. So we'll have to await more um, as as the year unfolds. What's going to be coming up very shortly is the Bonn intercessional meetings for uh, in preparation for the COP in November. So these are sort of the halfway point meetings and we'd hope from those that there'd be a clearer idea emerging of what the COP28 presidency is hoping for, what its priorities are with this particular COP summit. There's a sketchy outline of what those might be at the moment including looking for a forward-looking outcome from the global stock take, which will be the first one that we have at COP28 this year, and looking for uh, some signal from the global stock take to provide course correction when we know that we're very much off track in terms of the ambition of um, nationally determined contributions needed to stay within the 1.5 to 2 degrees that the Paris Agreement asks for. There'll also be a lot of focus on the global goal for adaptation and not surprisingly given last year's outcomes uh, financing for loss and damage. So those Negotiations will be going on between the 5th and the 15th of June um, and should provide important markets for what's going to happen at the COP meeting. Meanwhile, in Australia, we've seen um, the Australian budget handed down by the Federal Treasurer at the end of May. Again, the focus there was on cost of living issues, so sort of hip pocket issues that are very much at the forefront at the moment, given inflation pressures and rising uh, interest rates in Australia. But there was also a lot of talk about ensuring a clean energy future for Australia and providing the foundations for Australia to be a clean energy superpower. So newer investments announced around things like green hydrogen, renewable energy, rollout, measures for energy efficiency for households. You'll notice a lot of these are mitigation measures. So we did see a sort of significant focus through the the budget on that and an announcement just before the budget around a, a national net zero transition authority, which will be in place from at least in some form from the 1st of July with a mission to manage the transition and particularly look after workers and communities as transition goes forward in communities that have been particularly dominated by coal over their recent history. So there's lots going on um, that's shaping both the domestic landscape and also the negotiations heading into COP at the end of the year. Yeah, that's right, Jackie. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Thanks, Beck. So this is probably a good time then to turn to our guests. We are pleased to have joining us today, 
Dr. Kate Dooley, Research Fellow at the School of Geography, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Melbourne, Dan Petchich, Research Fellow at the Melbourne Centre for Cities, and Theo Mendez, PhD candidate in International Relations and Climate Change at the University of Melbourne. Thank you for joining us today, Dan. Thanks, Cathy. Pleasure to be here. So you're here to talk to us about diplomacy and how it plays out at different levels of government, I guess, on the global stage or the local stage. How do you describe the art or the act of diplomacy between different levels of government? It's a great question. I mean, just to take a step back, I guess it's probably worth thinking about what diplomacy is, because I think it's something, sort of a concept that sometimes seems a little, you know, amorphous or suspicious, or people don't really know what it involves. But uh, essentially, you know, if you sort of look back, there really wasn't a common word for diplomacy, you know, until about sort of the 18th century. So we had, you know, city states and other sort of actors that were going around performing sort of what we call, you know, international engagements. But it was actually that when the term came into use, people were using it sort of pejoratively. So there was this element of sort of duplicity involved with this negotiating treaties and sort of trying to, you know, outsmart and outwit other countries. I think over time, particularly sort of as we got to the start of sort of the 1900s, there was a change in our understanding of diplomacy. And I think after the, the First World War, it was kind of more equated with this idea of kind of openness and cooperation. And I think that's sort of this new diplomacy that we're seeing now. So how can we actually negotiate internationally to sort of solve common problems or achieve outcomes for some people that we're representing, um, hopefully in a, in a mutually beneficial way? So I think that, um, you know, the skills that are negotiated with that, uh, it's really just about how you manage sort of international engagements generally. How that plays out in the climate space, I think that recently we've just seen climate negotiations and climate diplomacy just become more and more complex. So academics sometimes talk about this idea of hybrid multilateralism. It's a little bit jargony. Essentially, it just means you've got all these different actors, both different levels of government and also non-government actors, like big corporations and civil society actors and other groups that are now all having various levels of influence into how we sort of globally try to govern something as complex as, as climate change. So my sort of area is, is obviously looking at cities. So, you know, we sort of talk about city diplomacy and we use a pretty general kind of definition of what that is. So we, we call it the conduct of formal external relations undertaken by legitimate representatives of cities with other local, national or international actors. Now, that's pretty broad, but essentially it means that we have city representatives, it's, you know, officials, elected or otherwise, uh, who are working externally, you know, outside the, the borders of their own country, negotiating with a range of different partners to try to achieve outcomes. That's an important point you made there, outside of the country. So city diplomacy is explicitly sort of global or on a global stage, but surely there must be sort of diplomacy between other local governments, even at a state level or at in a national context as well. Absolutely. And that's kind of part of the complexity of what we're dealing with. So sometimes in uh, sort of international relations, people talk about the idea of two-level games. So this idea that people need to be working domestically and sort of externally or internationally to uh, sort of achieve the kind of outcomes. So I think what we've seen with cities, uh, particularly in the climate space and a range of other sort of global challenges is their increasing need to act internationally. So when we have sort of global challenges which don't really respect national boundaries, 
cities need to be collaborating across borders with all of these different actors. At the same time, they have a real stake in trying to influence what their national governments and even you know other levels of government, if you have sort of a federal system or something, are doing. So I think we see cities trying to action both of those strategies in the climate space. So whether it's working through transnational city networks to try to influence, uh, you know, for instance, COP negotiations. We see lots of examples of city networks having sort of institutional recognition and some sort of input into multilateral processes, things like UNFCCC processes. At the same time, we see cities coming together in their domestic city networks or other sort of uh, governance forums they might have to try to influence either their states or their, their, their national governments um, and hopefully, you know, have some sort of influence in the way that those national governments are then representing their, their national populations at things like climate negotiations. So you've just finished cohort one of this City Climate Diplomacy Masterclass. Maybe let us know a tiny bit about why it was important to instigate such a masterclass and what were some of the themes or discussions that came from those sessions? I think the masterclass in general sort of just came out of a need that we recognised in our research. So we do a lot of research at the Melbourne Centre for Cities on you know, what we call city diplomacy, the international engagement of cities. Uh, and found that there wasn't really a lot of avenues for cities to uh, develop skills or build capacity in engaging internationally, despite the fact that uh, more and more you know cities are having to fulfil those functions. So um, the masterclass that we're running at the moment, um, thankfully in this first year we've had some good support from the National Foundation for Australia-China Relations, doing a been doing a bilateral exchange program, uh, which is part of Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So and we've just had our first cohort of Australian and Chinese uh, local government officials. We had a series of sort of online um, exchanges and, and took people through sort of an online course, which was around sort of setting the landscape and building sort of skills and also doing some bespoke activities around, um, you know, how their cities can be more strategic in the way that they engage internationally, uh, particularly in, in climate. And then we sort of culminated that with a week of exchanges we had here in Australia. So we flew everyone here to Australia and had the opportunity to sort of meet with different levels of government people from Department of Foreign Affairs here in Australia, other sort of climate actors and specialists, people from city networks, and also to do a bit of workshopping and sort of build negotiation and what we call sort of diplomatic tradecraft skills. I think there's a lot of work to do to just sort of understand better this really evolving and sort of booming landscape of, of networks and exchanges that it's now possible for cities to, to take part in. At the same time, we know that local governments have very limited resources to engage in this kind of international work and it's a constant justification that needs to be made for why they're, they're you know, working internationally when they're a local government authority. So uh, that's sort of where that kind of strategic dimension comes in. How can you prioritise the things that are going to be most impactful for your community and then, you know, collectively for the, for the public good and working together towards, um, you know, better climate outcomes. Thanks for joining us today, Dan. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today, Kate. Can you first off describe how do the countries work together or against each other at the climate talks? Yeah, sure. And it's great to be here. There's a lot of moral and ethical and future generation dilemmas going on in the climate negotiations. And countries are very much aware of that. And some countries play to that to a great deal, but still only to the degree that it actually aligns with their sovereign interests and what they think their citizens at home will be expecting them to do and want them to do. So that is very much the driving force of all countries, even those that we view and see as altruistic in the talks. They're still acting 
on behalf of their citizens or at least what they view their citizens expect that country to be doing in the international stage. So, you know, there are these blocks that negotiate together. Can you describe what does that even mean and and then also how does that play out? In the UNFCCC, I mean, different treaties have different rules, but in the UNFCCC, decisions need to be made by consensus. So every every country has its own sort of position and voice in the talks, but particularly for smaller countries, it's very difficult to follow the climate negotiations. They're complex, there can be over 30 agenda items, many happening at the same time, extremely detailed, a lot of text. And so bigger countries, um, the US will go with hundreds and hundreds of negotiators and dozens or a hundred lawyers and advisors as well. Brazil also actually goes with hundreds of negotiators. They're often the biggest country at the talks. And part of the agreement under the UNFCCC is that least developed countries actually have two representatives are paid to go to the talks and, and represent their countries. And that ensures that all countries are represented. So these countries need to group together. I mean, this is the initial reason for forming negotiating blocks. These countries need to group together into sort of like-minded or interest blocks so they can cover all of the issues more easily. And so the the largest block is the G77, often operating as G77 plus China. But it's very rare that the entire G77 can align interests and have a unified negotiating position on an issue. When they do, it's incredibly powerful. And a really good example of this is the last COP27 in Egypt when the G77 aligned on the need for loss and damage to be on the agenda. At the start of the COP, it wasn't even on the agenda and for there to be a loss and damage fund coming out of the COP. And that was one of the biggest successes we've actually seen in terms of a huge alignment from developing countries, the entire G77 plus China, wanting that outcome from the COP and achieving it despite it being a US red line. So very rarely do uh, US red lines get walked back on. So the G77 is the biggest block. But Usually countries are operating in smaller blocks. So AOSIS is one of the sort of long-standing and well-known uh, blocks that stands for the Alliance of Small Island States. AOSIS has always been seen as the moral voice of the climate talks, and this goes back a long time, back into the very early days, even pre the UNFCCC convention being agreed in the talks leading up to that back in the 80s. Different leaders of small island states really took a stance on putting forward and framing the whole climate negotiating space as one of moral justice and of of justice for future generations um, because they said that their entire lives, their entire nations were at threat. And that was very powerful and uh, had a big impact and has framed the talks ever since really. And so AOSIS has always been seen as the uh, moral voice of the talks. There are other very vulnerable countries that form in negotiating blocks. So we have LDCs, the least developed countries, and that actually includes almost all African countries. So Africa's interests are often represented through LDCs, but it also includes many of the small island states. But then separately, there are the small island developing states, the SIDS. But for these negotiating blocks to be effective, it's really important that the interests of the countries in the group align. And so SIDS, for example, often are not a strong voice in the negotiations. One of the reasons for that is Singapore is a SID. And Singapore's interests very often don't align with Nauru or Fiji or Tuvalu. So usually those countries will um, put their energy and, and efforts, collaborative efforts, into AOSIS or LDCs to work through those So they're the sort of main developing country groups. The developed countries also operate in negotiating blocks. And the one that Australia is part of is called the Umbrella Group. That's Australia, the US, Japan, several other countries, developed countries who come together. 
And their positions tend to be very focused on market approaches. They try to take a balanced view on issues, but Australia in particular has not been strong on climate finance for quite a while. They've improved a little bit the last year, but the umbrella group is generally not seen as a progressive negotiating bloc. So that's just an example of a few of the groups. There are many others. There's BRICS, which is a recent alliance of um, sort of major developing economies. There's ALBA, um, Latin American groups. So we could talk about this for a long time, but the negotiating blocks is really how countries approach and shape their positions in the talks. I could see why some of these countries bring so many negotiators with them in order to keep on top of which parts of the text they're negotiating within whichever block they're a part of. So I know you've attended many COPs and, and one of your lines of research is around you know following where the negotiations are, are going. So how do you even keep track of what's going on when you attend these meetings? It can be very difficult. I follow as an observer. I'm not part of a country delegation at all. And um, observers often work together with other groups as well. So we have our blocks, if you like, but they're not negotiating blocks. So the ENGOs, the environmental NGOs, and the RINGOs, research um, NGOs. So it certainly helps to meet and, and swap notes with other people who are following the negotiations to see what's happening. But the main thing I do on my main strategy is following the major positions from a political perspective. So there's a lot of technical details and it's hard to always be across that. But you can look at the talks back at the sort of big picture political level and this is where the bigger groups will come back together and state their positions on some of the key issues that are going to come through in the main decisions of the talks and the issues I follow are particularly around equity and burden sharing between countries and accounting rules and market approaches and how that that feeds into that. And so I'll tend to know which groups are are particularly strong on those issues and are putting forward positions and be looking at the, the statements and positions those groups put forward. And I think one thing that's important when people are following the talks for a long time is you can read a lot of subtext in what a group says. So they'll have a statement and a position, but it will have many different meanings specifically related to that agenda item that may go back several years. And for the experts following the talks, that's all very clear. And that helps you to focus more quickly on which direction you think things are going. Goodness me, very complicated, but um, I'm glad that it's you on the ground (laughs) tracking it for us and, and others. So thank you for joining us today, Kate. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Hi, Theo. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So your PhD research looks at Australia's foreign partnerships with countries like South Korea and Japan as part of our clean energy transition. We're really interested in hearing you talk a little bit about what it would take for Australia to become a renewable energy superpower in our region. It's a very interesting question, and it's one that's on the minds, I think, of a lot of policymakers at the moment, politicians, business people. Everyone's kind of thinking about it right now. There's a few things we need to think about when we think about the term renewable energy superpower, if I can start there. This term is one that has emerged really quite recently. The first kind of mention of this term that I found through my research was actually from Hillary Clinton, who used it in the 2016 election campaign referring to America and America's potential to be a renewable energy superpower. And then if you sort of look at the term after that, there's a real slump. It doesn't get used very much. Trump, who did end up winning the presidency, had no interest in kind of pursuing that avenue for America. So there's kind of a lull. And then in 2017, it sort of picks up again, but in Australia, 
in reference to our potential to be a renewable energy superpower. And when that term is used, it usually refers to things like hydrogen, critical minerals, areas where we can take our existing potential in sort of mining industries and energy export know-how, I would say, and transition that into new avenues for energy exports that are cleaner than what we currently use. And then after sort of the 2017 period where it was really only getting used in policy circles, Ross Garneau was pushing it quite heavily in his work as well. He sort of focused it very much at a state level. There was very little ambition at the federal level for any sort of rhetoric like that at the time. And then it really isn't until the election of Albanese in 2022 when the term then goes national. And he made reference to those exact words in his victory speech after the May election last year. And that was kind of the, I guess, the signal to the world that Australia was kind of going to engage in these things in a more comprehensive way. So that's kind of where the term came from. In terms of what we actually need to do to get there, that's kind of where the gap is. And when it comes to that, what I examine in my work is the fact that Australia is obviously not a country that has as much economic or even geopolitical clout as big players like the US and China. So how can we use our status as a sort of if you want to use the term middle power, to still take advantage of these opportunities which are being driven by much bigger kind of shifts in the geopolitical system that are also happening at the same time. So I think that something really important that we need to do is re-engage with our region and strengthen our alliances in Asia, especially with Japan and Korea as two kind of really big importers uh, of energy who are looking to import clean energy in the future. You may have heard the term floating around, especially the US likes this term as well, friendshoring. So it's this idea that instead of necessarily nearshoring, which is the term it sort of replaces being the most important part of energy as in where is it coming from and how close is that to us? There's a lot of shifts, especially in the West towards this idea of friendshoring that distance doesn't matter so much as long as it's coming from somewhere that's a reliable partner. So there's a lot of European appetite for Australian clean energy as well, especially from places like Germany that are really pushing for to be able to import from us. But the real value for Australia and what we can provide is our proximity to Asia. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about why specifically, for example, Japan and South Korea. I mean, that's really interesting and why not China or Indonesia. This episode, we're talking about partnerships, really, in the COP negotiations. Why Japan and South Korea, do you think? So Japan and South Korea are massive, massive energy importers. South Korea imports 97% of its energy from overseas, whether that's fossil fuels or renewables, and Japan is similarly large. And these countries are facing a very specific problem, which is... They know they need to transition and they know that they're heavily reliant on imported energy and they don't have a lot of options to produce renewable energy domestically. For both countries, they're extremely mountainous, not a lot of land, dense populations in dense cities. So there's just not space to build solar panels and wind turbines like we can here in Australia. And on top of that, they don't get the same solar and wind penetration that we get um, on the Australian continent as well. So there's these sort of geographical limitations which have combined with a whole lot of social and political factors. In Japan, there's obviously the fact that nuclear power is completely unviable thanks to the Fukushima disaster. 
South Korea has a more complicated relationship with nuclear power. It sort of goes back and forth between wanting to double down on that and wanting to explore other avenues. The current president in South Korea, President Yoon, he's very pro-nuclear, but President Moon, who he replaced, was very anti-nuclear. So those two things kind of combine to create countries that are extremely hungry to import renewable energy from overseas. And hydrogen has emerged as this way which both countries have kind of said, oh, this is maybe how we can do this. Because the benefit of hydrogen is, if you think of it like an energy carrier, it allows us in Australia to convert our solar and wind power into something that can be shipped overseas rather than having to run cables all the way across the Asian region up to Japan and, and Korea. Both of those countries look at Australia as a partner that could help with that. Um, both countries have a history of investing in Australia's energy industries when it comes to fossil fuels. So I think it really positions itself as quite a natural partnership. And so it's about working out the complexities of what would that actually look like in practice and how does it differ from the trade that has emerged so far. And it's those countries that have emerged instead of ones like China and Indonesia because they have the domestic capacity that South Korea and Japan don't have. Indonesia's looking like it will be quite a major exporter of critical minerals. And China is already quite a significant producer of renewable energy, but it's almost all going to be for domestic use. So it doesn't have the capacity to produce excess for export that Australia has. So that's really where our opportunity lies in terms of what countries we partner with. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today, Theo. No worries. Thank you to our guests, Kate Dooley, Dan Pedgick, Theo Mendes and Professor Jackie Peel, and to our listeners for tuning in. I'm your host, Cathy Oak. And I'm Beck Markey-Towler. You've been listening to the Climate Talks podcast, produced by Greta Robinstone, Jackie Peel, Ben Chandler and Andy Zhu. Thanks to Music for a Warming World for providing the show's music, taken from their album Only One Way to Head. To stay up to date on the latest episodes, subscribe to the Climate Talks podcast. You'll find more information about this episode and our guests in the show notes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Network Cities and at MCF Uni Melbourne. Thanks for listening.